Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as lessons, and we talk about it all. In this episode, we are going to discuss Isirion's Enchiridion of the West Marches. We finally made it to Chapter 4. There was much rejoicing. It's a chapter of narrative, and our first big header is mechanics and narrative. Um, and sort of, they're making the point that these are the same. That's yeah. They're going to hit that idea pretty hard and explicitly. Um, like the mechanics are the narrative, the narrative is the mechanics, um, because you're not running a plot. Right. The the reasoning is that what the characters do is what the narrative is, and what they do and whether or not yep. they succeed is based on the mechanics. So therefore, mechanics and narrative are inseparable. Right. And there's a lot of essential truth to that in all D&D, though this strips away a few of the things that would make that at least nebulously true in in other models of D&D. Right? Right. But th- the whole idea of no plot or central storyline, I mean, th- that itself is a, a complicated statement because getting down to defining the terms really clearly is shaky. Like, you've got the interaction of factions, you've got a setting, so you've got People with motives, many of whom, most of whom are antagonists. Right. And, and you don't not have a story. Right. Line. But the, but the, but the point they're making is you don't make choices just for the story. Sure. That's really what the culmination of this section is, is trying to be. So let me, let me actually, for the audience, read this, this last uh, paragraph here. It says, mechanics are the shared rules about how the world and thus the story operates. Dice are rolled when the outcome of a story beat is in question, and the modifiers to a die roll reflect the conditions of the world. Things cannot happen in the West Marches simply because the GM or players want them to. They must be reflected in the mechanics. New mechanics can be written, certainly. That's uh, that's what this whole book is about, actually. But things cannot be done just, quote, for the story. It has to be that you aren't just making a decision right this moment to push the story in one direction or the other. No, no. It has to be that the narrative and the mechanics are one and the same. And therefore, when something is done for the, quote, story, that means you roll the die and the mechanics-based resolution of that determined the direction of the narrative and thus the story. I, I struggle with this idea because it doesn't take me long to get to um, just decision points that don't involve a die roll in D&D mm-hmm. that then shape a whole narrative. Um, just deciding what approach you're going to take in interacting with someone who isn't in opposition to you. So you don't need to roll most of your social skills against them. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Suddenly there's plenty of narrative without a die being rolled 
And that's not sure, bad. but um, I think that their response to you, uh, based on the NPC section in this chapter, would be: Well, the DM knows what the motivations of that NPC are, and knows uh, how much information that NPC has or does not have, mm-hmm. and it sure. should arise naturally out of play how that how that is resolved and so therefore that is still basically mechanics and narrative sure you know the the dm doesn't change the entire motivation of that npc just because they want to give the players a piece of information no at that moment. no no i'm not saying you change the npc's motivation not at all just um i think there's a lot of there's no way to avoid, you wouldn't want to avoid a lot of nebulous space that is not dice governed. Um, because honestly, you're just closing off room for humans to make decisions uh, at a certain point. Um, like d d is highly mechanical. There are more highly mechanical games. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm not really arguing with the point, just... Um, there's a lot of discourse this week on the Twitter about um, social mechanics mm-hmm. and uh, their role in D and D, and the extent to which you know you are exerting your will uh, on an NPC by rolling, and that set of ideas is engaging very strangely with how I think about all of these things. Yeah. Um, and I expect to a real degree how the writers here think about them. Um, anyway, not not important right now. I think the authors of this text know that there is a uh, likelihood that the reader is going to have the same issue that you have. Because basically the next uh, three pages, right, or at least the next two pages, maybe maybe three, are spent trying to convince us that of why what they're saying is true or or show us how in the way they want you to run the game it makes what they're saying true sure it's also it's also okay if they don't succeed at that right um sure i'm i'm not sure how well this chapter succeeds i think that's something we can revisit when we when we're done with the chapter that's um, fair Anyway, um, I, I definitely agree that uh, the, the header do not fudge dice for the West Marchers. Okay, so uh, here is where I have to say this is one of my favorite sections in the entire book. And okay, I will okay. point our dear listeners to the September 17th, 2017 post by yours truly on RPG Musings, which is titled Why I Don't Fudge Dice Rolls or Change Stats on the Fly. There you go. And it literally says basically the same stuff. I mean, it doesn't reference Wet's Marches, but it basically says in bold, player ch- not I'm reading now I'm reading my own, own website, okay? <laughs> um, talk about sure. navel gazing. Uh, player hey. <laughs> player choices have to matter. And if I change the dice rolls and creature stats just whenever I want, I have diminished the consequences of those choices. That's fair. Um my my only quibble with that is that 
if I discover a a bug in the creature stats, like something I got wrong while writing creature mm-hmm. stats uh, during play, I'm just going to fix it, and no one's going to be the wiser because that's just that's a QA okay, step. So right, uh, uh, because I know what I uh-huh. meant, right? So that would be um, a typo, though. That's a typo. Okay. Right. That's a typo or failure of design implementation. Okay, but my response to that is this, and this is the next, (laughs) my next paragraph in the same post is if I was setting up an encounter for a group uh, that I that I had a good likelihood that they're going to meet, and I didn't properly describe the situation, or I only realized that the PCs were outgunned in the middle of the battle, or that there is a problem with the creature in the middle of the battle. I will adjust the behavior of the creature. I might do a morale check. I might cause the creature to be more likely to flee. I'm, you know, depending, I'll still do a check and let dice determine it, but I might have them suddenly start making not so optimal tactical choices. I might just blatantly give the PCs a chance to run away and telegraph to them that that might be a good idea. Here's your chance, right? Um, but I'm still not fudging rolls and I'm still not changing the stat unless it was a blatant typo. Look, if it's a blatant typo, then that's a typo. That's not a changing the stat. Right. But right. Yeah. So I basically, you know, they've channeled my words in here. I mean, I'm not accusing them of plagiarism. That's not what I mean. I'm just saying like this, this idea is prevalent and has been prevalent for many years in that. Right. I mean, this is definitely an idea that goes back to roughly 1972. Mm-hmm. Right, the game has not come out yet, and I'm sure, you know, Gary and Dave and uh, all the the folks who are gaming with them are arguing over this right there. I'm sure of it mm-hmm. because Lord knows it's going to dominate, um, you know, the, the strategic review and uh, Dragon and Dragon right. Magazine. And everything else that has ever held anything like that title run by TSR mm-hmm. or Watsi uh, ever right. since. Right. Like you can set a calendar by, oh, are we doing dice fudging again on Twitter? <laughs> yeah, okay. I know, cool. right? Yes, because in between me writing this article uh, and, and today, I'm sure there have been at least two other times on Twitter that I've had this very same conversation. Right. Uh, in all seriousness, if it's less than once a year, uh, right. then uh, something strange yeah, yeah, has happened. Yeah, of course. Um, but to their credit, in, in this text, they're saying, you know, it doesn't matter what your reasons are for doing it in other games, or if you decide that you're doing it, it's fine in other games. They're not judging you, but what they're saying is, in the West Marches, do not fudge your dice. The three reasons they give are, number one, it robs the players of choice. That's the same reason as I gave. Number two, um, it undermines the unpredictability of the West Marches. And part of the tenets that we've talked about through the the other episodes in in this series is part of the tenet of this entire West Marches idea is that it's relatively random in in a lot of cases what's going to happen between point A and point B during that trip, right? Um, And their third reason is it addresses symptoms, but not the causes of problems. If you find yourself constantly fudging dice, what you're doing is you're adjusting for problems that were occurring, not because of the dice, but because of things that happened 
before the dice, which they address at the end of this page. I find their argument relatively compelling, of course, because I agree with it. So I'm biased, right? Of course, I'm going to agree with it. Oh, sure. I mean, I, I, I do find it uh, compelling definitely for the West Marches style. No, no doubt about it for the West Marches style, where um, you need to be prepared to embrace failure as a very real, probable part of play. Like maybe most missions succeed, but some missions are going to mm. fail. That's just going to happen. That's the West marches for you. And the knowledge of that failure, the experience of that failure exists to sweeten the success. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like th- that's the same ethos as from soft. Mm-hmm. So yeah. There's, um, there's also a particular way that they put this that I think is really interesting because, you know, sometimes we hear about the old editions of the game and old grognards as being, you know, running games by DM Fiat and uh, making decisions just to kind of screw the players and having a very adversarial DMing style. Um, mm-hmm. And so the way that they talk about how fudging dice affects player choice, it's kind of tangential to that. Here's what they say. They say to ignore the results of dice is to override the rules of the game. It is a statement by you, the GM, that your word and decision decisions matter more than the other players who cannot change their results of their dice. It places your will higher than theirs and thus denies them the chance to freely make choices. I find that a really interesting argument because it actually goes against the argument of adversarial DMing and screw you DMing, right? It goes against the, I'm just going to run this game by DM Fiat and do whatever I want. Right. Um, Yeah, I think that like they definitely want to flatten the playing field, create a lot of space for DMs to be surprised by outcomes. Um, I think that's all to the good. Um, you know, one of the things about this is that you might get into situations, especially because of oddities of the terrain that the DM sets up, where the players can cheese the fight. Again, like it's a Dark Souls, Dark Souls or Elden Ring fight, where oh, yep, we find a place where we can shoot the boss, and the boss can't get mm-hmm. away, and the boss can't get to us. Right. All right, and in the West Marches, that actually does kind of need to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you really try to avoid that in most games because it creates anticlimax, but uh, along with the joy of success and the frustration of failure. The huh of anticlimax kind of needs to be on the table as a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, this is emergent play at its most emergent in, in mm-hmm. a way. And I mean, this, this too is something very recognizable from LARPing because uh, in, in a buffer LARP of the kind that I've run, you might have anywhere from uh, let's say eight or nine for a large module party all the way out to 100, 150. Uh, 
individual intelligence intelligence is bouncing off each mm-hmm. other and stuff's going to happen. Right. And you've got maybe anywhere from again, eight or nine to, you know, a hundred, 120 creative players thinking about how to solve problems and literally, you know, moving through space, trying to physically solve problems. You have no idea what's going to happen and you need to hold the reins loosely. Right. Right. Um, In my own game running, I have been rolling out in the open for a long, long time because um, the way my campaign runs, like if there's a party wipe, that's too bad, but they'll go do a corpse run and it'll be okay. They're not going to lose those characters permanently as a result. Um, Resurrection magic is part of the campaign and they know how to access it. And that's just what we'll do. It would be a big setback, but I can live with setbacks and so can they. Right. Um, And so I think that that's got to be a key part of your mindset in the West marches. And I think it's a good thing to accept as part of your mindset Mm -hmm. in non-West marches D&D. Yeah, I don't. I I think that's pretty true. I don't. I don't disagree with that at all. And yeah. in fact, it 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 talks about emergent. You know, the whole second half of this chapter is all about emergent play. Um, yeah. I think they're just trying to lay the groundwork here with why. You know, if you're all it basically, if you're always trying to direct everything and fudging dice and making things go in a certain story path, then that leaves no room for emergent play. Right, you're, it's too narrowly defined for emergent play. If you're if you're defining everything, nothing has room to emerge. Yep. Yep. Um, so, are we ready to move on? Um, well, just one other thing. Uh, they do sure. they do um, speak uh, also about um, not fudging dice. Uh, it is only meant to be applicable at the table. Like when you're prepping though, if you're rolling dice uh, on a table to get inspiration or to plan out something or whatever during prep, feel free to ignore the dice whenever you want, because you should always go with your instinct about what's cool and fun in that area more than you should go with maybe a dice roll. Um, And so anything at the table during the game, is sacrosanct. You cannot fudge that die. But anything during prep or before the game, when you're not at the table, when you're not doing something during a session, then you know you should go with inspiration and what's you know go with the rule of cool in that case. Yeah, I definitely agree with that difference of um, the difference between game running and world mm-hmm. building as fully different modes with fully different rules for GMs. Um, but I do find it interesting to describe. Yeah, yeah. You know that there here is a stage that calls upon maximum judgment and full employment of pure aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Y- your pure aesthetic is what sets your West marches apart apart from, uh, let's say mine. Mm-hmm. Right. right? Um, and they would be different, though. You know. Uh, I have every reason to believe I enjoy I enjoy playing in yours to listen to your show. <laughs> sure. So there's that, um, right? Um, but that maximum aesthetic versus sort of now erase yourself, right? 
mode right. of GMing is really interesting to me. Yeah, I mean right. that's an interesting way to put it. I would I would actually frame it differently. I would say, okay, so you've got maximum choice and maximum self-input, but then during the game, you're not erasing yourself. What you're doing is seeing what you did play out naturalistically. Right? Mm-hmm. With mm-hmm. chance rather than at, you're not you're not a puppet master pulling strings. You are a designer uh, letting your design go out into the world. Right. Though that is actually a, another duality of the DM, right? Because here again, you have a split personality mm-hmm. in just in game running. You're both the referee and an audience Absolutely. member. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like the baseball players are not playing specifically for the amusement of the mm-hmm. umpires. Right. Right. But, um, the DM is very much there to be entertained. Sure. Like maybe not as the core stated goal, but if the game's going to keep running, it better mm-hmm. happen. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause then it'll fall apart if you're, if you're not. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, for sure. If you're not getting yeah. the emotional payoff of seeing people engage with your content, yeah. then you're not getting right. the thing. Yeah. Right. Well, like that is the pay and it's great. Don't get me wrong. Right, right, it's right. great sure. pay. I love this stuff. <laughs> yeah, of course. Absolutely. We wouldn't be spending hours um, and hours on a podcast if we didn't love this. Exactly. Um, though the conversations that we get to have in, in Discord and Twitter and wherever else about <laughs> the show. Great. Yes, absolutely. Are also yes. great. Yeah. B- big part yeah, of the pay. Of course. Absolutely. Um, feel free to rate and review, by the way. <laughs> we could use some of those. I hear people need those. I, I don't yeah, actually I know. Mean, whatever. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, ready to move on? Yeah. Uh, so, verisimilitude comes next. And um, their discussion of verisimilitude is, is solid. Um, it, this is another term that gets a lot of discussion in RPG mm-hmm. discourse. Um, and they're very much talking about just consistency of rules. Uh, and making it absolutely as easy as possible to suspend disbelief uh, in a fantasy world. Because the existence of magic doesn't mean there are no rules. The existence of magic means that some of the rules are irrational. Right. The the world is is purposefully unlike our own, but it has to have an internal consistency. It doesn't have to have an internal realism. It has to have an internal consistency. And if it doesn't have an internal consistency, that's where you're you're breaking that ability to suspend disbelief. And if you can if your players can no longer suspend disbelief, then your game is lost because you can't, you know, generally I would say there's no winners and losers in D D, right? But the winners that's because you're almost always winners. You're winners every time you play and they all have fun, right? And you have fun. But as soon yeah. as they cannot keep and suspend that disbelief, you've lost. That's the one. That's the one case I would say where now we have losers in this in this great game. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I see what you're saying, and you know, um, there's plenty of little shades of gray in that. Absolutely, yeah. Because, By no means is it black and white. You know, for sure, absolutely. It, it can, you know, some suspension of disbelief can can slip for a second, but. Then the player comes back next week, you know. Well, and 
setting that aside, oh, you slept for a second. For right. Whatever. But also uh, there are, there's also something to be said for purposefully breaking the fourth wall occasionally. Right. Uh, in some style, not necessarily West March's style, but in some styles of game and yeah. some, in, in some ways doing a little fourth wall peak, you know, peeking through the fourth wall is, uh, is not, is not necessarily the end of the game and the destruction of all, you know, disbelief and, and, uh, uh, I am I am justly famed for um, having a, a very strict ethos of this needs to be funny for in-game reasons rather than being funny for out-of-game right. reasons. Sure, uh, that, that is very much the like environment my taste are developed in. And I and I um, and generally speaking, me as well. But I'm just saying that I know there are games and gamers out there that you know they they sort of they do enjoy that kind of breaking the fourth wall sort of idea. Sure. Right. I really only enjoy it in superhero games mm-hmm. when specifically one of the characters is um, Jennifer Walters or, uh, you know, Deadpool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I, I love some She-Hulk is what I'm saying, guys. <laughs> um, but all that to say, I think there are definite shades of gray in all of that. In in no way is this me trying to make a black and white statement. Um, you know, because yeah, yeah, yeah. some someone could construe what you're saying as well. No one who is at the table playing a PC is allowed to make a joke about real life. So you can't joke about you know the latest movie that you saw or Monty Python or you know whatever other typical thing right. a bunch of geeks sitting around a table are going to joke about. And that's not what you mean either. So. It it isn't, though I do want to keep some amount of lid on that so that people can stay connected. But that's exactly what makes it gray rather than black and white, right? And that's all I'm saying is that, um, yeah, so, but you're not going to be one that's going to make a game mechanic rely on somebody's real world knowledge, which which is something that used to happen in, in, uh, in old school games back then, right? Uh, Gary Gygax himself yep. is very famous for having, you know, real world knowledge, real world pop culture knowledge be a part of solving certain puzzles and riddles in some of his adventures. And that was okay yeah, for his group of players. They all knew it. So it was fine. Yeah. Um, so planning in the sandbox. Um, I mean, this definitely reads to me as hold the reins loosely. Yeah. Well, I mean, what it's saying is while we're saying you need to have internal consistency and verisimilitude, that doesn't mean that you're planning everything out so that it has internal consistency and you're planning every step of the way and you're making sure that you know exactly what's going to happen when the players do any possible combination of actions, because it's just impossible for you to know, for any DM, any GM to know what the players are going to do. That's, I think, their their main yep. point here, and I, I generally agree. Um, it, one of the things that I think would be a really interesting set of side discussions is just like it talks about. Um, uh, let's see, sorry. Uh, when you design a faction, don't do it with the intent of players following a specific plot line or quest chain. Instead, just design the faction along the lines of how its members would actually behave, flaws and all, and let the players interact how they will. And what I find interesting about this is how much of a Rorschach test it is for who you are as a game runner and what your 
like views of humanity mm-hmm. are, right? Um, like the book has said, you want to cast these people as most generally antagonistic. Is specific about that, and and correctly, mm-hmm. I think. But um, when you give the instructions to, you know, just have them be people, flaws and all, that is very much invitation to say what you think people are like. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and I, and sort of, if you are deeply cynical, that is going to come through. Right. Maybe you feel one way about that or the other, but I mean, well, you'd have to work pretty hard to hide that. Yeah. I mean, what I was going to say was this is where the advice of, uh, widely taken a lot of different types of media, right? Watch movies, yeah. watch television, watch popular, you know, pop, pop culture themed things, you know, in other words, it doesn't have to be like fantasy. It can be the Simpsons or it can be, you know, um, geez, I don't watch TV, so it's hard for me to think of a current show, but, um, <laughs> but it's, you know, read books, look at magazines, watch the news, like be, be, have your eyes wide open in other words and be willing to take in media from all different types because that will tend to give you a better a better sort of menu of ways to make your npc groups right your factions or or your individual npcs because if if you if you are just completely cynical and you really only have like two archetypes in your brain of how uh, an evil you know cult works then all of your evil cults are just going to be the same thing because you're you don't have you know very much more than one idea and and all of that and so that's where that advice comes in um it's curious that you brought that up about um the factions because i went i went to go look at in their appendix what their i thought i thought i was just going to glance at what their example faction was but it's like an entire page of um very tiny font talking about it so i can't just scan it very quickly and 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 see right. whether I, yeah. I really enjoy the um example or not um sure but yeah no i hear what you're saying uh you know like you can think of it as hey your west marshes is going to have a tone mm-hmm. and that tone is gonna have a lot of nuance right. and uh these undefined things, these things where there aren't hard rules, where you know you get to figure out the personality of this individual member of this faction. Uh, that's where your tone is going to come across, because that's going to be the kind of tapestry of all the players' encounters with NPCs they can talk mm-hmm. to. Or if there are no NPCs they can talk to, boy, is that a tone statement. Right. <laughs> Whoa. One I don't recommend, but right. it's a tone statement. Yeah. I mean, and, and the, th- you know, they do talk a lot about theme, right. At various different parts uh, in, in this entire book. And so, you know, you're, you're going to want your factions and your regions and the regional inhabitants to fit the theme of what you're doing, but you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, we're human. So you know, our outlook is necessarily going to be reflected in some way and to some extent by everything we do in the game, right? Yeah. And even, you know, even an opposite, you know, the something that is, um, 
you know, depicted as the opposite of how we are, we see ourselves, right, is, is also reflective of how the opposite of what we would see, right? So, yeah, it's, you, you know, you're in the game, right? I mean, you're running the game, you're <laughs> in the game, you're, if you're planning these things, you are, a piece of you is there, just like any other artist who makes something a piece of, you know, a piece of every painter is on every painting they do. A piece of every writer is in every book that they do. A piece of every designer of games and of adventures and of factions is in everything they do. It's really hard to separate yourself from that because it's impossible because we're human. For sure. For sure. I, I agree with that. That is what I'm essentially trying to get yeah. at. I do appreciate your point about the cynical thing, though, because uh, if if you're uh, okay, look, the world has been in upheaval for the past three years, right? So, I mean, <laughs> when you look at the things I create in the past three years, you yeah. can see a stark difference <laughs> from well, other things. So, so like watching someone design a game when they're when they're just letting their subconscious run wild and they're not. Like really engaged with, I was trying to create this emotional experience that expresses what I'm going through right mm -hmm. now, but just, um, I, I, I wanted to make a game and I was going through a thing and, oh, something right. came out. Um, it's a great example of this with uh, my friend Lee Hammock, who, uh, while he and I were both in a weird limbo zone of not yet properly laid off and still expecting to be paid and go back to our jobs at a video game company. Um, we were getting lied to by the CEO oh just every single day about it. Um, this is thousands of dollars of wage theft, I want to be clear. Um, he created a game about um, like space marines going through cycles of cryosleep and losing bits of their memory so that their whole world was a lie over oh, time. God. Wow. <laughs> he wasn't thinking <laughs> that he was making a game about the thing we right. were going through, but boy, did he ever. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Um, and he, he sort of stepped back and said, oh, yeah. <laughs> when the, when uh, this was pointed out to him, <laughs> that was an interesting yeah. time. <laughs> not, not a happy one. Yeah. That was a, that was yeah, a, a, a tough Tough handful of yeah, months. Yeah, that's rough. Oh god. Mm. Uh, so, moving on to the lore section. Yes. Um, uh, I mean, you have my attention, right? <laughs> yes. Um. <laughs> uh, uh, so, so principles of lore. We've got a bunch of, uh, you know, subheaders under principles of lore, uh, and I want to hit those first before we dig into each sure. of them. So story takes precedence. Lore is to be discovered and lore must be meaningful. Um, those, are, those are interesting things to have as core principles. Mm -hmm. So let's dig into what well, that so means. Before we do that, let's, let's give their actual premise here. Their premise is oh, in a yeah. West March's game, lore is more relevant and more important than it is in other story-based in, in other games that have a plot and an overarching story. And the reason is because uh -huh. when there's a plot 
and an overarching story, there are events that are in motion that that are either, you know, even if the, the players are the catalysts of the, or the PCs are the catalysts of those events, uh, they're still in motion. And so now everybody's sort of following and watching and waiting and trying to, you know, m- influence the outcome, right, of, of those events in motion. Um, and so that's an active, alive thing that's happening and everybody's involved in that you're not necessarily going to be stopping to look at the latest ancient lore, right? Like there's just, there's no time. You have other motivations. In other words, you're, you're going and following that event, you know, that event uh, string. And because, because that's the, that's the game and that's fine. They're, they're not knocking that. They're just saying in those types of games, the lore that the, the area is steeped in isn't, necessarily important it's very much less relevant unless it was actually relevant to the main thing that was happening those that main chain of events but usually it's not usually it's not written that way usually it's written so that the plot and that overarching umbrella of events that are occurring within that plot line are the important thing they're living the lore right so other lore isn't important but in a west marches game Lore is extremely important and relevant because that's how the the players themselves, and remember, you've got this big stable of players, a big roster, right? That's how they're going to learn about the world they're inhabiting and how they're going to choose their next missions. For sure. And so that's the premise. So if you you have followed along with all of the West Marches stuff until this page, this is page 63, okay – and you and you understand everything that has gone before, at least partially, then that makes sense, right? That that premise is true for what they're saying, right? So, in other words, provided that premise is true, now let's talk about what that means. And now I'll let you talk about that. <laughs> sure. So I mean, that's a really good, really good summary. The um, the, the sort of in character sidebar of what's past is prologue uh, is very on point mm-hmm. to me. Um, you know, even when not running West marches, I run very lore intensive mm-hmm. games. And so like uh, this is all context for the, for clues of one kind or another. Um, but just positioning everything in the world Right is all part of that lore. So story takes precedence. Um, the first real principle is that story isn't lore. The story of the game is that which is told through the mechanics. You know, the things that happen mm-hmm. is what they're saying. The stuff we were um, just talking about in the last three pages. Yeah. yeah. And so the lore is the GM's content that isn't, you know, an NPC right in front of you employing a verb right. somehow. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> I might be one of those many, many GMs who write do- dozens, if not hundreds of pages of history and documentation <laughs> and stuff. Um, yeah. But in my defense, uh, we came up with some really good ways to put those in front of the players and let players engage with them and compare them and create their own new questions from them 
and things like that. Well, and and right? let's let's be clear. They're not saying a DM shouldn't have hundreds of pages of lore that they have a great grasp on so that they can sprinkle bits of it into the game. What they're saying is don't give your players a hundred page book to read before they even start the game and expect them to remember any piece of it. Sure. That's not what lore sure. means in this, in the context of a West March's game, the DM might have a ton of lore, but none, none of that right. lore matters until it becomes something in the game. Right. And um, it, it really does. I think need to exist to, um, Raise new questions, mm-hmm. right? Questions that PCs want to answer. Even if that question is, wonder where that guy's sword wound up? Right. Kind of questions. Mm-hmm. Because, hey, that's a great start for a quest. I found a story about Stuart really kicking sword. I, I wonder where that sword wound up. Right. Congratulations. Yep. You're off right. to the races. Now that, now that you know? war is important. Right, and and you've just like told the players what the reward is. You know, that that's great. Um, and on the other hand, this this is part of their caveat about writing hundred pages. It might be that the players decide they don't give two craps about that sword, and sure. they might ignore it forevermore. Yeah. So if you have written a hundred pages about how cool it would be for them to get that sword back and everything it's going to do and what this whole history is and all that, you're going to be real disappointed when they ignore it. Oh yeah. You've got to be willing to, you know, throw out vast reams <laughs> right. of lore and then not have very much Absolutely. at all of it stick. And as we talked about last time, your next job is, is to throw it out right. again. Right. Like you keep giving it to them and, Let's be real. Like everyone performing tasks, they're looking for low-hanging right. fruit. They're looking for what has that right combination of uh, approachable risk and appealing reward. Right? right? R- risk or you know, cost effort or whatever you want mm-hmm. to call it. Whatever they both feel they can achieve and feels worth right. achieving. Um, so the next section is lore is to be discovered, uh, while information is a commodity Mm -hmm. is something we really hit on last time, really, really hard with, Hey, you know what? You could have whole adventures where you don't find, you know, one thin silver, Mm -hmm. but what you get is some great answers to, I don't know how to get past the guardian in front of that dungeon that you want to go to or where that dude's sword is. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Like the, the answers are the payment in a lot of cases because it's something new to act right. on. Yep. Um, and here is where they sort of take that. Okay. You wrote hundred pages of lore. Now, what do you do with it? Here's what they say. Establish history. That's fine. Then fragment it, break it, scatter it about. Drop clues and hints and suggestions everywhere and let your players work to uncover the mysteries. So it's yep. okay. It's okay um, if, you're, if you're a lore master and you want to write 100 pages. Not that I would know anything yeah. about that, mind you. La, la, la. 
but yes, but it's uh, okay. But learn how to use it in West March's style, or your game will not run the right. way that you're expecting it to run. Uh, and third, lore must be meaningful, uh, which is to say, lore can only be a commodity if, if it provides meaning. Um, it, you know, it has to matter at all. Um, it's really easy to kind of drift off into, you know, just vast reams of lists of names. Making a list of names matter is the trick. Right. And um, like for Dust to Dust, I named every patriarch of the major church uh, for the uh, 1300 years of the church's history just to mm. do it. Just like in case I ever needed it, I went ahead right. and did it. I didn't uh, thrust that list in front of the player's eyes. Right. That, that wasn't a good time to me. But you know, when stuff came up and we were we had some historical event 500 years ago, I would consistently know what the name of the patriarch was because I'd, I'd got the uh, start of term, end of term dates for every uh, patriarch and matriarch of the Redwood right. Throne in the whole, whole history of the campaign. Really useful thing to have. Yep. But I, it, it was, it was, meaningful in a consistency way not in a payoff way until you know we could have eventually run something where what they needed was the name of that one um mysteriarch of of the throne and now they can cross-reference all their documents to get the year right and find the answer now it's meaningful right 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 that's the kind of thing we totally did. Not that specific one, but that mm -hmm, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, and so that that thing I'm describing is there on a very mercenary level, um, meaning could be the method by which greater treasures are acquired. Yeah, I'm talking about this would have a specific, like lock, like key in a lock mm -hmm. payoff. Right. 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 Uh, it's the solution to a puzzle. The puzzle has a reward. Bing, bang, boom. Right. Um, yep. But you can also sort of be one level above that, as they describe in the next paragraph here. Um, if the player is searching for an ancient lost city, but then discover that the city was deliberately hidden away, that changes their search. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, that's That's just... More, more context, more um, richness to the mystery. Right. And context is a great word because context is what allows the PCs and players to put meaning, some meaning of their own onto the lore that they're hearing, right? Or I could say this a different way. Context is what happens. They put, they put the meaningfulness in more context as they learn even more, right? It puts more context on it. And that actually makes it feel richer and deeper because as, as they've been saying, you know, and as they're going to say later on in this chapter, you don't just dump it on them. You don't give them everything all at once, right? That part of the treasure that they find when they go someplace, as you said earlier, you might not get one stinking silver coin, but if you learn something that allows you to put more context on 
the material that you have, that's worth more than a silver piece. Yep. Yep. It's very much a getting paid tomorrow kind mm-hmm. of payoff. And I think as a player, you've got to feel like, hey, I got dragged along through four steps for this thing rather than two steps for that thing. I bet the four step payoff is a little richer. Right. Yep. Yep. Not little Richard. That's somebody else. <laughs> yes. Very, very different. Although I hear a great inboss. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so the next page, they, they kind of switch gears a little bit and they talk about layering history and they suggest that you take that hundred pages of lore and history that you have and you split mm-hmm. it into layers that encompass certain periods of time. For example, the periods of time are the current time, right? The most recent time, right? Or recent time, which is basically uh, not in the adventurer's memory, but in people living in the West marches, it's in their memory. So not, Maybe maybe one generation before, maybe two, but not not more than that. And then there's old. So things are old. So you know, um, maybe the great great grandchildren or great great grandparents remember hearing about it or were alive at the tail end of some event or something. But you know, so now you're talking three or four generations, right? But not not within anyone's real living memory, not really, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's the historical, which is a much longer period of time. You only know about these because of oral traditions. Uh, you you know that uh, it might not be exactly correct. Not that any of them are, are necessarily exactly correct, but here it's especially harder to determine the whether something is true or embellished or not true at all. Uh, and then there is one more layer, and that is the oldest layer, which is the ancient, which is the layer of myth and legend, right? And the thing that it that I find interesting about how it points this it points out here, um, you sh- it's the last uh, sentence on this page. It says, as you build your timeline, you should put roughly the same amount of effort into each category. Um, that means that the recent layers get a lot more attention and detail, Per on a per year basis than the old ones because because I had to think about that because the way it's stated is kind of weird but here's what it means you can make all of the history that you want but the players are living in the current right so their year to year knowledge is going to be very relevant to them because they're living it and it's in the current time so you need to have details about the current time so on a year-to-year basis about the current time, you know a lot of details, but that's just one year, right? And if the recent is just one, maybe one generation, right? Maybe that's 20 years total, maybe one generation. But when you talk about the ancient time, you're talking about 3,000 years. And you can't have as much detail on every single year of those 3,000 years as you have on every single year of the current timeline. Not even in a hundred pages. Not even of in hundred pages of lore, and it says you shouldn't. In other words, the farther back you go, the less 
detail that you have. You might have details about specific incidents or specific items, but in terms of on a year-to-year basis, you you should be spending the same amount. Let's say if, if we're going to talk about 100 pages, if there are five regions, that means you get 20 pages per era, right? 20 pages for the current timeline, 20 pages for the recent, 20 pages for old, 20 pages for historical, and 20 pages for ancient. And since the ancient time period covers 3,000 years, you only get 20 pages for 3,000 years. But for, for example, the recent timeline, well, that's only 40 years. So you got 20 pages for 40 years. So you can get a lot more detail about each individual year. That's what they mean. And what that does is it makes it so that you have now a sort of, um, you have kind of an anchor point or a foundation for what your NPCs may know, because you know how long they've NPCs have been alive. So you know what, whether their knowledge extends back into the old or whether it extends only in the current, you know what I mean? And because you have a certain amount of detail for each of those time periods, that gives you the ability to determine what your NPCs know. And they don't quite make that connection explicitly, but that's the connection that I really make when they talk about that. Um, It's an interesting section. It kind of feels like it's kind of almost out of nowhere in terms of, I mean, I know it's about lore, but uh, it's really a more structural thing about how you structure your notes and the ideas you have for your campaign and not so much about lore per se. I think it's a, a really important statement about um, where you put the the emphasis of your work sure. and um, where you where it's safest mm-hmm. to kind of let your imagination run away with itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that for a lot of creators, like a lot, a lot of creators, it is very tempting to have the most exciting, most dramatic stuff happen in the deepest past. Um, and, you know, th- that mythic age is when the, the very coolest stuff happens. And I'm not going to be the one to tell you that's wrong. I would be fibbing. But um, I think that the key reminder is so as cool as you made that stuff then try to care about each more recent age just as Mm -hmm. much make it make interesting um dramatic things happen there too even if they aren't sort of um wars between the gods or whatever right so the yeah the idea is Uh, If you make everything in the ancient time period so fantastical and and world-changing and universe-affecting and and amazing and everything else you don't spend hardly any time on, well, it's going to seem like, okay, well, we had a great 3,000 years of really fantastic upheaval and interesting stuff, and now for the last couple hundred years, it's been super boring, (laughs) right? Well, and and that's that's very much created in the just um the bones of fantasy right. it's uh, evident in tolkien mm-hmm. right, right? Uh, like things are never as sweeping and mythic and dramatic again in the silmarillion as they are in the Inalindala. right sweeping dramatic things happen but they shift to a more personal scale right right when it isn't the valor themselves acting as much mm-hmm. anymore. And when 
humans are on the scene, that's another sort of step down because Tolkien was perpetually telling stories of a fall from right. grace. That's what he wanted to talk mm -hmm. about. And uh, again, I'm not criticizing this as an approach to fantasy because I, I do it and love it myself, but um, from a sure. human perspective, uh, because we are all fallible and because in real life, everybody makes mistakes. Um, to the feeling that there is redemption, right? I'm, I'm not saying everybody's mistakes are equal, right? But everyone sure. makes mistakes. And the idea that there is a redemption available, some sort of, some kind of redemption, even if it's hard to attain, even if it's fantastical to attain, that's a very compelling, uh, identifiable need for us right look if there's never any redemption then all hope is lost you might as well just be hopeless and then what does anything matter right so there is you know because what also weaves through tolkien's stories are the idea of there's always someone with hope there's always someone who believes that they'll get through to the end whether they're correct or not is a different story right but there's always there's always a uh, some amount of hope, and the reason there's always some amount of hope is because most of his stories are about a fall and then a redemption. It's not always the same people sure. doing the fall as doing the redeeming, but that's you know. It, in fact, it usually, usually isn't. Not, yes. Yeah. Um, but that's you know that's a, just a different thing. But yeah, I, I do I do have another sidebar about this particular page. I swear um, yeah. that either Matt Colville um, was a consultant on this book or they watched some of his videos because this uh, this sounds exactly like something that he would say. And I know that he made a video very similar to this. So let me read it to the audience. Hmm. Uh, fantasy is post-apocalyptic. Nearly every fantasy setting takes place in an age after the fall of a great civilization. Civilizations like Numenor or Atlantis or Rome. Ancient ruins, magical artifacts, forgotten secrets all imply the existence of a group of now gone predecessors that were more powerful than what is now, that is what is known now. And I swear Matt Colville did a video about having to have ancient civilizations in your D&D game, because if you don't have those, well, what are these tombs and fortresses and dungeons that all of your D&D adventuring parties are raiding? They can't be current. Hey man. They can't be current things because that's a different thing. <laughs> they have to be ancient. Sure. Well, before we go directing our listeners over to MCDM, folks, here on the Tome Show, <laughs> let me encourage you to listen to my episode, I this with, episode as well. Yes. <laughs> with uh, Jeff Greiner and a number of other luminaries that I'm sure Sam will fill in for me uh, afterward. Um, because it's been a minute, um, <laughs> sorry, uh, where I was pointing out that uh, that medieval imagination um, all the way through, I mean, Napoleonic France and, and later is looking back to Greece and Rome as their heroic predecessors, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and so the medieval imagination was post-apocalyptic. Right. Right. Because they could see these Roman ruins about them that they could no longer 
even maintain, much less mm-hmm. recreate. So that episode was Tome Show episode 351, and it was released on July 1st, 2021. And it featured Jeff and Tracy sitting down with Brandis Stoddard, Robert Aducci, and Jim Davis to talk about post-apocalyptic settings. Uh, my apologies to uh, Tracy, Robert, and Jim for forgetting they were on that. I have no excuses. <laughs> no, it's fine. Uh, Robert is the uh, well-known uh, fan of Dark Sun, right? So he he was coming from the you know ap- apocalyptic sort of setting in that direction. And Jim Davis is the one that was uh, in the middle of doing a weird Wastelands Kickstarter for a fifth edition uh, source book. So at that time, so it's a, it's a really good episode. I remember editing it. I, I enjoyed listening to it a great deal because um, I dig this kind of stuff, right? Um, so I will link yeah. to that episode in the show notes and I will also link to the uh, MCDM post-apocalyptic uh, video. Uh, I really like that the hard timeline math sidebar here includes uh, events that are the distance from our present day to be what they're talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think it's a classy bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, that's why I say I really like this page and the way that they've described how to framework your timeline and how to be okay with having a lot of lore in there, but how to think about, you know, putting it in, in into your game. Um, but again, it's, it, it's, it's a sort of this odd mechanistic kind of chat uh, page in, in, you know, tucked into, you know, three or four recent pages of just, we're giving you kind of theory. Now here is, which I, this isn't a complaint. I know it sounds like a complaint. I'm not complaining. It's just, it, it, it's, it's very stark in it's, you should be doing this A B C D E. And you should be giving this much time to each one, A, B, C, D, E. Um, and it's it's good. It's good. I like it. Yep. Uh, yeah, th- I mean, this is a great section of just how to build a, a setting with depth, but not sort of wasteful obsessiveness, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I think this is just a really good... DMing tips for world building, uh, no matter what the chapter is called. I found the Matt Colville um, video. It is from July 8, 2018. It's called Dead Empires. It's one of his running the game um, videos. So highly recommended. And the, the reason I'm, I, you know, normally I don't stop in the middle and say, oh, I found this video and let's link to it. But, um, you know, I think part of the reason why there's so many pages on this is because they're trying to sell an idea of, making the lore relevant in the current day, but you have to then know what the lore is and how long it, how long ago it was, it was current. Right. Uh, And I think that's hard for some people to wrap their heads around when they're used to playing games or running games that are more, you know, plot focused to the way that, you know, there's the one MacGuffin or the two MacGuffins or the three parts of the MacGuffin or the seven parts of the MacGuffin, right. That you're getting could could be seven, seven. Yes. uh, That you're getting to, to fulfill the, the, the needs of the adventure. Right. Um, And this isn't that this isn't, they're not saying split it all up and whatever like that. This is more about, sprinkling different eras worth of lore throughout your entire setting because it needs to be you know that that's how you get things that your that your players are going to grab onto right 
Again, as we said, we don't know that they're going to grab onto wanting to know what happened to that guy's sword. Ooh, but that cleric who was worshiping this one deity and then got turned and, and desecrated his own temple and had this magical mace. What happened to that mace? Right? Like, I don't know. What happened to the holy symbol? I don't know. Right? Who knows if that's what's going to be the thing they hang on to or the scroll of Numenor, right? Like, who knows? We don't know what they're going to hang on to. But you're never going to know unless you sprinkle liberally pieces of lore from all of the eras in your setting, in your West Marches. Yep. I absolutely uh, agree with what I would again call just the throw it all at the wall. Mm -hmm. then. When you're done, throw it all again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's the that's the other thing, right? As we as we have said multiple times now, you have to keep reminding them, right? You have to keep telling them that this stuff exists. Not because you're you keep hinting and you want them to pick go on that task, on that, on that uh, quest to get the sword, but just because they need to know it's relevant in the setting. Yep. And I mean, they're going to miss stuff, right? As we talked about so much mm -hmm. last time, right. they're going to miss stuff and, and need to hear it again. Because the first time they hear it, they probably don't have enough foundation built to attach it to other things and remember it or, or get why it right. can matter. And that's where that context comes in, right? It's about giving them more and more context. Part of when you remind them, you're not just telling them the same thing, you're giving them a little tiny bit more and then reminding them, remember you, this is what you learned about this thing last time. Well, now here's one little tiny more, an another piece of knowledge about that, right? One little tiny piece, Yep. another little morsel. So moving on. Um, so items, artifacts, and treasure. Um, so it's, it's looking at how to get people engaging with lore through items, artifacts, and treasure. Well, I've talked about this yeah. in the show. And this this like, actually harkens back to uh, the, the end of the last chapter when it talked about uh, putting history onto the loot that the players are getting. Yeah. Yep. Um, I mean, uh, real historians learn an enormous amount based on uh, the age of the, the Roman coins they find in mm -hmm. the ruins. Right. Once you get your players doing that, I mean, congratulations. Right. <laughs> you have it made, but um, there's a lot to there's a lot of other angles you can take rather than just uh, which emperor is stamped on this coin. Well, so like there's one thing. Uh, so I, there's a um, there's a huge mega dungeon and mini setting uh, called the Halls of Ardenvol, and it's one of the largest products produced uh, i think it's like 1100 pages or something when you get it printed it comes God. in five volumes right but it has a whole little mini setting and everything but here's why i say this so I, mini nothing get so out so i well because it's like a little valley right with a few towns and anyway so uh, -huh, uh, -huh. uh so i'm not gonna give you the whole history of this place but uh, suffice it to say so i played in a few games of it uh, with one of the one of the people who it was play tested for some like 10 years or something right as it was being developed um, it's by Expeditious Retreat Press, Joseph Browning. One of the things that it does really well, there was this one part uh, when uh, when we were playing this game, um, we're, we're going down this really long, extensive diagonal stairway. And on the walls of the stairway are things scratched into the stone, like little messages. 
uh, and uh, and sometimes um, sometimes it's written with chalk. Sometimes it's you know carved, uh, scratched in with a python or something. And sometimes it's like magically you know adhered to the wall. Anyway, the thing that's really interesting about that is those messages were put there by people going up and down that stairway in the recent past. Right. So some of the messages Uh are ridiculous, like, you know, um, Sophie was here. Right. Okay. Well, big deal. Right. Sure. Um, And some of them are, you know, uh, Gorth's password is Yelp. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So that might be useful. We don't know. We don't know who that is or, you know, if it's that you, you know. If Sophie is who I'm tracking down. Right. right? Yes, absolutely. Right. But my point only being. My point, my point only being that in Tomb of Annihilation, uh, tracking down the final fates of each mm-hmm. member of the Yellow Banner uh, was an interesting right. sideline. Yeah, yeah, but 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 you but you get my point, right? Like, so not every message seemed to be relevant. Some of them were, and some of them seemed not to be, right? But don't you know we wrote down yep. every message, right? And so that happened, and then later we found coins that we couldn't date because, of course, this this civilization is ancient so even though we can look at the emperor that's stamped on the back of that coin we don't have current knowledge about that because none of us were historians i was a thief right (laughs) um so uh there is another layer of artifact you can get and we could spend that coin or we could take some and try to have it analyzed right or we could try to trade it for people who are looking for ancient coins i mean there's a lot to do with that but how much we wanted to learn about it was in our hands, right? We could choose what we did with that coinage. We could choose what we did with the information written on the wall, right? And then we could act on it or not act on it however we saw fit. And that's exactly the kind of thing that it's trying to say here, that you're putting things from multiple different eras of lore in here, and you're making it so that it's usable in some form, whether it's treasure or whether it's an item or whether it's something that they have to make a choice about trading it in or cashing it in, right? Mm-hmm. Ardenvold did that very, very well. So I just wanted nice. to highlight a more recent product that actually you know, is working with some of these and also to highlight the fact that this concept works even if you're not playing a West Marches game. Right, you can s- oh, still oh, layer those types of things in there, as you pointed out with Tomb of Annihilation. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely like um, coding in lore every single place mm-hmm. you can. Just never, never miss a chance to be saying something about your world. Um, so multiple, multiple perspectives is uh, is a great mm-hmm. one. You know, you want to be delivering the lore through the perspective of NPCs as often as possible. Um, and there are times when it's sort of hard to specifically code an NPC's perspective onto it. But when it's something they're saying or something they wrote down, it, it's perspective completely. And that's right. great. Right. Um, I love that it, that it calls out Rashomon. Yep. That, that's really nice. Um, I mean, it's greatly included reference to leverages the Rashomon job, which is a great episode. <laughs> yeah. I said uh, something um, about Rashomon to a colleague, a work colleague the other day, and they said, Rasha, what? <laughs> and I uh, had to explain 
what it meant. It was a sad, sad day. Oh, <laughs> uh, I have not actually seen the original, though I understand the principle mm-hmm, just sure, fine. Sure. Right. Um, I mean, and 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 so many people I know have not actually seen the original. Right. It's more about the idea yeah. of what it is, and it's a it's a concept and a technique used in multiple different films in o- across many genre. Um, but like the idea of just having to explain it was like, oh, sad. <laughs> Yeah, but but most famously by the immortal Akira Kurosawa. Uh, so Legends and Reality comes next, um, and the, the marches are a place of myth is is a core principle. Um, definitely something that very much comes from uh, your from soft games, right? Uh, where many of the major NPCs you encounter are going to be. Uh, gods of some kind or another, god, god or demigod. Okay. Um, their their idea here is, um, even though that you have legends, um, if you if you uh, right, so this is the legends that diverge from reality. Sure, right. So if you if you play a legend too close, right to to what it is, then there's no surprise, right? There's no. That's there's true. No, there's no fantastical element. There's no. It's it's going to almost possibly. Not, they're not. They're not saying that it absolutely will be this, but possibly it could be anticlimactic because even though some of them might, some of your players might be like, "Oh, I knew it." You know, I, I I'm I'm happy. I guessed that. In this case, it might have been better to have something slightly different than what they thought because then they get the "Ooh, I was almost right," but then there's the joy of the twist right so right. they're they're warning against playing too close but they're also warning against diverging too far because uh if you if you diverge too far then the legend is not meaningful right like if if you're if you're playing to a sort of well-known trope it's okay to twist the end of it to make it slightly different but if you say if you, if you present it as this well-known trope, but then you change every piece about it, it's not really that well-known trope. So you're just going to confuse your players. Yeah, um, and the other thing that I would say to that is, um, in a lot of cases, the the reality that diverges from the the myth can be a bait and switch situation, mm-hmm. um, as a lot of twists are. You know, I thought it was going to be this. Now it's this. Be really, really careful that your switch reality is not less interesting than your bait reality. Yes. Yeah. You need to make it cooler and more interesting. Not always happier, but cooler and more interesting. Yeah. Um, I've seen so many things posit a really cool possibility and then um, ha- uh, like undercut the whole thing with just a flood of cynicism <laughs> and right. wind up, well, I thought I was getting something really cool there, but nope, it's all just yeah, garbage. Sucks. Like not that the story is, is garbage, but like this is a world of filth and squalor and nothing's okay or good anywhere. Great. Okay. Which you can get away with once or twice, but boy, does it need a palate cleanse afterward where things are 
a little right. bit better, even in the bitterness and brutality of the West right. marches. Or, or you need a shift to say, well, that was that, but here's this way that you might be able to affect it. The final, the yeah. final disposition of that particular event. It's kind of a yeah. hidden little gem that you didn't know when you think about this lore. Now you just learned this thing. You might be able to use that to sneak into the back door to steal that thing that you can use to actually change it. You know, you know or whatever. Like yeah. there's that there is and, that rescue and, redemption area there too that is possible. Right, and here's where I'd point out that. No matter how much you try to step back and be a referee, your world-building jamming is going to carve certain channels of possibility. Right. Um, for you know, villains that have a resolution other than their timely demise, for example. Mm, right. You know, is there a way to resolve this villain other than? Um, murdering them absolutely as fast as possible. Well, maybe. And that's a choice that you're going to be making during your world building that doesn't really leave you fully in the referee position Mm -hmm. while you're running it, in my opinion, in my experience. Yeah, I mean, I could see that. Yeah. Um, So it's, it's a bit apart from the legends and reality subject, just thinking about um, where GMs have um, narrative control, even when they've tried to separate themselves from. Right. Yeah. And so the important thing there, I think the way to try to ameliorate that, although there's no way to do it a hundred percent is when you're prepping that, as you said, when, when you're prepping that big, bad boss, you need to find out right then whether there's going to be a way out, right? It, do they have to be defeated or can they escape? What are the parameters that's going to lead to them being able to escape? And how could, if if there is a way, how could the party exploit that if they find out? Or how could they stop that escape if they find out? Um, and be careful to not railroad yeah. that too much, right? Like, again, it's and, one of those you can't de- you can't ever determine exactly what the players are going to do, but you can have thought about it and you'll have a little easier time navigating that maybe. Yeah, I would say you know, in your planning, try to specifically actively imagine at least one outcome that is something other than the boss's timely right. death. Yeah. Um, so that, uh, when the players do try something else, you've at least begun to imagine uh, how far up the hill Sisyphus has to push that boulder right. to get there. Yep. Right? It, it, no one says it's got to be easy, but um, if you're always just landing on a hard no, this guy has to die, you're really eliminating player agency. And I, th- I think that's quite contrary even to the the bitter and brutal West mm-hmm. Marches. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Uh, they, I'm not saying they should be able to, you know, befriend and adopt every <laughs> uh, demon lord in your West okay. Marches. Just but, 
come up with some I mean, other variety- answer, even if it's just here's how we shove this guy in a soul gem. Right. Congratulations right. to I us. I mean, variety is the spice of life, right? If every if yes, every exactly. quest only culminates in the beatdown of the big bad, that's going to get old at some point, right? Uh, yeah. At least have a skill challenge for dancing right. on his corpse. I mean, I mean come on. you know, and not waking him up again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so then, um, then it comes to the next section, which is uh, the last page in this sort of major half of, of the chapter. After this, we move on to the emergent uh, discussion. But this page is about NPCs. And it, it suggests that, um, number one, you don't give any NPC enough information that they end up just lore dumping to your party because lore dumps are not the way that West marches are supposed to run. And they're not usually fun. Um, So your NPCs in general should be relatively unhelpful and they're unhelpful for a variety of reasons. One of which they, they give you uh, five possible categories for the reasons why the NPC is unhelpful. And here they are. The NPC is uninformed. The NPC is delusional. The NPC is a villain. The NPC is broken in some way and is unable to provide you with the information or the NPC is dead. And so they basically say every single NPC should have one of these categories put onto them. That way, you know, immediately whether that NPC is likely to give the party information what information they will likely give them and whether it is likely true or not. Yep. Um, and they're, they're right to point out that uh, the NPCs in the town should be uninformed rather than the other things. Right. Since several of the others start to suggest adventure premises, which can't happen because it's right. the town. Absolutely. Yes. Right. So remember the premises, the town is the home base. It's absolutely 100% safe. Uh, and so, therefore, no adventuring is going to happen there at all. And that means that, in general, uh, anybody that is there is not really going to have very much information, if any at all, right? Because they're not adventuring themselves, so they are not out in the West Marches. So how could they have information, with the exception of possibly a sage or a caravan passing through, right? So there are some cases, but in general, the people that the party, that the, the PCs know and might see on a daily basis in town are not really going to have any information. Yeah, and, and the, the use of that sage in the town, uh, among other things, it's to let players turn gold into information some right, of the time. exactly, yeah. As far as right. I'm concerned, yeah. um, but also to help lay some foundation to get players just more interesting questions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not to give answers. Right. Actually. Right. To to give advice <laughs> and uh, possible uh, information that leads to more questions, not not answers. Right. No one in town is giving answers. Yeah. yeah exactly. The answers simply aren't in right. town. Exactly. I mean, that's right. Uh, and they and they spend a little bit of text on avoiding the lore dump um, and the reasons why, and that's fine. Yep. Um, and you know, it basically comes down to players are risk averse. Right. Lore dumping is uh, lore for the risk averse. No, thank mm-hmm. you. Um, 
I mean, basically at this point, the entire framework has been laid out for us. And the, the last bit of this chapter that we're going to talk about in the next episode is going to put that all together and tie it with an ice bow. And then the rest of the book is examples of how they themselves, the authors themselves, put these uh, components of, of this style together. Um, so at this point, if you've read up to this, I mean, it's you know 63 or 64 pages or so. If you've read up to that point, then you are at a point where you can construct an entire West Marches style game and prep to run that West Marches style game. Um, so yeah, we're almost done. Yep. And so having said that. So that's going to be it for us tonight here in chapter four. We've got four more pages to cover, but it's going to have to wait for next time here on Edition Wars. Sam, where can our listeners find you? I'm shocked. Shocked. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I just bet you are. <laughs> you can find me on rpgmusings.com and you can find my article about not fudging dice and you can find uh, several other articles there. You can also find me on Twitter at DM Samuel or you can find me on uh, the Tome Show where you are right now. How about you, sir? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. I also write for tribality.com. My personal blog is brandisstoddard.com. And my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. Awesome. So in conclusion, um, folks, coronavirus seems to be surging back. Please be careful. If you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated. If you are vaccinated, maybe go back to masking, especially when you're indoors. Just a thought. Awesome. I think you should all do that.